Good morning again. I'm not sure if you had picked that out, uh, Luke, intentionally, but that fits very well with uh, the passage in front of us today in 1 John 2. We're going to be looking at verses 28 through the first part of chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 3. Uh, and this passage is talking about us and the marvelous reality of being God's children, being called God's children. And um, so we're looking forward to being back in our study uh, of 1 John. Let's go ahead and begin uh, just with a word of prayer today. Thank you, God, for your kindness to us. We do marvel at the reality that you have made a way for us to be called your children. And so we pray that in, sp- in light of that, that you would help us to um, worship you, to respond to your word today uh, in obedience and in joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's been uh, several weeks, as you know, since we've been in 1 John, but we are back uh, today. And if you remember, just a a short, very quick kind of recap, uh, we identified uh, a threefold purpose to this letter. Uh, In 1 John 1, 4, uh, John writes, we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. And these are three verses that all say, we write so that. First uh, John 2 and verse 1, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And then in 1 John 5, 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so we really identified kind of a uh, uh, trifecta, if you will, a threefold purpose of this letter. This letter uh, was written so that you would have joy so that you would not sin, but pursue holiness, and so that you would have an assurance of your faith or of your salvation. And I would submit to us that the passage that we're going to be looking at today actually touches on all three of these in one way or another. The Christian's joy, uh, because we are called a child of God, uh, the believer's pursuit of Christ-likeness, and the believer's assurance of their salvation. And so we're going to use the following outline today, uh, the believer's assurance of faith, conformity to Christ, and commitment to holiness. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 28, and now little children abide in him, that is Christ, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the believer's assurance of faith. And this portion of the text today is dominated by one command in particular, and the command is abide in him. As Christians, we are commanded to abide in Christ. And immediately our minds are flooded with imagery from John 15 because we read there about abiding in Christ, and he uses an illustration that helps us understand and capture this thought in, first, or in John 15.4. 
uh, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Our union with Jesus Christ as believers is illustrated here from a very simple agricultural example, simple example of a grapevine. Uh, And this is, in a lot of ways, very elementary knowledge, and yet it's essential for us to grasp and understand this. I noticed uh, the other day in our own grapevine, we have some grapevines in our yard, and I noticed that in one of them we have, a, we have a, a, a few bunches of grapes growing, and one of them, the branch uh, coming off of that is partially broken, um, and I'm hoping that it doesn't, uh, I don't lose these because of it. I don't know why this happened, okay? But it's partially broken. If it was completely severed, what's John 15 telling us? Very elementary knowledge. The grapes are going to die. Okay, it's very, if you're not connected to the source of life, then, then, then you're not going to have life in yourself. Um, in the same way that this branch, as Jesus describing, abides in the vine, so too, in the same way, you and I are to abide in Jesus Christ. He is our life. He is our source of nourishment, our source of grace, our source of enablement. He is our source of everything. There is nothing that we can do apart from Christ. There is no task we can do. We cannot even fill our lungs with oxygen without Christ. We can't even have lungs without Christ. We can't even have our bodies without Christ. We can't have anything without Jesus Christ. He is essential to all of it. In fact, so essential, so crucial is our abiding in Jesus Christ for our very lives that Jesus himself says that anyone who does not do this will be cast into the fire and burned. John 15 and verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. And so coming back now to 1 John, as this has been illustrated for us, we see the command very clearly in verse 28. And now little children... Abide in him. You see the connection here between the abiding, the the branch, the vine, the grapes. And now coming back to 1 John, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. Now let's ask ourselves a question. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Let's grasp that first before moving on. The word abide here is a Greek word that means to remain or to stay or to persist. If you survey the different English translations, uh, they're usually translated either as abide, as it is here, or as remain, or as continue. Abide in Christ, remain in Christ, continue in Christ. And we have a little bit of a clue as what he's getting at. If we were to go back a few verses in 1 John chapter 2 to verse 6, whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walked. If you're claiming that you have this, if you're claiming that you abide in Christ, then your life ought to look like you're abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ then has to do with continuing to trust Christ and continuing to obey Christ. Here's how John MacArthur describes this reality. He says, believers must continue to love and obey the scripture, submit to the direction of the Holy Spirit, 
and remain committed to the truth they first received. Such abiding precludes clinging to a habitual pattern of sin. Likewise, there is an element of belief that plays into this. In 1 John 4, 15, fast forward in this letter, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God, here's our word again, abides in him and he abides in God. So what is he saying here is the key to abiding in Christ. It's confessing the Son, that Jesus is the Son of God. Your belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is indicative of abiding in him, which means that part of this is having or is persisting in correct and orthodox belief. Are we believing in heretical teaching, or do we believe true doctrine about who God is and, and what he's revealed himself to be? Now, I want to translate this to you into some very practical behaviors, because they abide in Christ. Maybe that seems a little bit, what exactly are you talking about? So I'm gonna, I, I just have a list here, and uh, after each one of these, I have a Bible verse that I've taken each of these from. And so uh, at the end of the message today, I'm going to give as a point of application, abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. And you say expound on that. Well, I'm going to expound on that right now, what that looks like, okay? So abiding in Christ means that you continue to believe and confess that Jesus is the Son of God. We already saw 1 John 4.15. Abiding in Christ means that you look to Jesus in believing faith. And I'm not going to read each passage here, uh, but you can jot those down to look those up. Abiding in Christ means that you continue trusting, believing, and consuming the word. Abiding in Christ means that you keep his commandments, means that you walk in obedience to Christ, and it means that you continue to trust and obey the Christian truth that's from the beginning. Living your life in the sphere of what Christ has called us to do, abiding in Christ. Now, not only does the scripture give to us these concepts on what it means to abide in Christ, the scripture also provides to us what the benefits are. If you abide in Christ, then these kinds of things will happen. If you abide in Christ, God answers your prayers. You'll experience full joy. You will produce fruit. And you will not keep on continuing to sin. In addition, there is a very severe consequence for not abiding in Christ. And we saw this a moment ago, but we'll rehearse it again here. And that is John 15, 6, you will be cast into fire. Now we could break these down into a little bit more detail. And I'm going to do that, just some practical applications here. What does it mean to abide in Christ? I'm going to take those things that I mentioned a moment ago and say that we are to confess that Jesus is Lord in the community at work in church. We are not to be ashamed or shrink back here in this season of life, but rather to proclaim him in the world. We're to point people to Jesus and his word as the answer to the problems of this life. We are to look to Christ and his sufficiency that he gives. We are to trust the sufficiency of the word enough to obey it, even when it makes no sense to us. Anyone ever been in that situation before? I'm reading the word, and I'm supposed to do this, but this makes no sense to me. You know what you're supposed to do? Do it anyway. That reveals that you trust. We only trust when it makes sense to us, then we're really trusting ourselves. Trust when it doesn't make sense. 
Likewise, we can say that we're to memorize the word, read the word, study the word. Don't trust your own understanding and interpretation. Trust the scripture's understanding and interpretation. Practice radical obedience to the Bible in all areas, including self-control, finances, love, serving others, denying self, discipling others, investing others, being quick to listen, slow to speak, and in a thousand different examples of how we are to practice obedience to Scripture. Also, we're not to look to the philosophies of this world for wisdom. Instead, look to biblical theology. And I would add to here the, the wisdom of seasoned Christians who can point you to passages. I'm not sure what the Bible says about this. Uh, look to those who are seasoned believers who can point you to Christ. We are to do this thing. We are to abide in Christ. We are to remain, to continue on, to continue to walk down this path, this well-worn path that many pilgrims before us have walked down. And there is a reason for this, and the text gives to us the reason, again, 1 John chapter 2, and I want you to draw your attention to two little words in the English, one word in the Greek, and that is the two words, so that. This connects, the word so that, whenever you see this in Scripture, it's connecting two different things together. This is connecting the command with the reason for the command. Why are we to abide in him? Okay, look at the verse. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that. The reason. So that when he appears, that is Christ, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. We are to abide in Jesus Christ so that when we meet him face to face, we will have confidence and not shrink back. So let's ask some questions and give some answers based on this. Who will shrink back in shame? What does the text say? All those who do not abide in Christ. Who are those who do not abide in Christ? Unbelievers. Those are the ones that we saw in John 15, that are cast out into the fire. What is the faith of those who shrink back in shame? Eternal hellfire. This is the the gospel message. Run to Christ. This is analogous to the parable of the wedding feast. A man, you may remember, was present who did not have a wedding garment on. He did not have Christ's righteous robes. And we read of what happened to him in the passage, Matthew twenty-two, twelve through 13. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Likewise, again, John fifteen six. anyone who does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Abiding in Christ is not optional. We must abide in him. We are called to do this as believers. And this task is one that we are called to where the Lord has given to us some signs. How do I know that I'm abiding in Christ? If I were to look at my life and say, you tell me to abide in Christ and I think I'm abiding in Christ, but just tell me, so I'm sure what that looks like. The passage gives to us that, uh, that application. The next verse describes this to us. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Okay? Now I'm going to distill verse 29 to you in the shortest form 
that I know possible, make it as understandable as I can. 1 John 2.29 can be represented by the old adage, like father, like son. Simple enough. That is to say that children have a tendency, and I'm sorry to say this, children, whether you like it or not, to resemble or to take on the character and the idiosyncrasies of your parents. And that even includes the idiosyncrasies of your parents that annoy you. Pretty soon, you tend to look around and say, I'm doing the same thing that my dad does, that my mom does, that really annoys me. Okay? We take on, the whether we like it or not, that's what happens. We're in that environment constantly. And the same really is true here in this passage, but obviously in a much more substantial and serious way. John is saying that Christians look like Christ. And this makes intuitive sense to us. Puppies look like their parents. Dolphins look like their parents. Apple trees look like the trees that they came from. And pine trees look like the trees that they came from. Human babies look like little versions of their parents. And so Christians look like their God because we have been born of him. It's like kind produces its own kind. Okay? And so if you are a child of, you know, people, look like them. You're a child of God. You look like God. The image of God, man, being restored. This means that there should be an obvious connection. You know immediately. Okay? You know this in the real world. Okay? If you see a puppy, you don't wonder to yourself whether its parents were chameleons. Okay? You're saying, I, I know this produces after its own kind. And the same thing is true of Christians. It should be very obvious. You should say, oh, that person must obviously be a Christian because they look so much like their Lord. One writer says, the child exhibits the parent's character because he shares the parent's nature. That's what we're saying here. A person's righteousness is thus the evidence of his new birth, not the cause of, or condition of it. Another author rightly concludes, since Jesus is righteous, it is evident that those who do what is right have been born of him is like kind of a two plus two equals four situation here, okay? It's very straightforward. Now, isn't this what John's letter has been about from the beginning, right? He's teaching us that Christians look like Christ. If you're a Christian, there's going to be certain things that are different in your own life. You want to have assurance of faith? Well, ask yourself the question, is there any difference in my life than what I used to be? Those uh, whose lives look like carbon copies of the world are people who can have no assurance of their salvation. You just look like every other person who what how do how do we know? How can we be sure of this? Now there is one more thing I want to see in this verse before we move on, and that is a a technical detail. We're actually going to explore this little technical detail 
more fully in chapter 5. So I'm going to give you just a small little taste of it here, and then we'll unpack it more in chapter 5 because it does, he does the same thing there. I want you to notice that he says here uh, in verse 29, he says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, we believe in the inspiration of Scripture, right? We believe that the Bible, uh, it is God's word, his very words. Consequently, we believe, as Jesus did and taught, that everything in Scripture is important down to the very individual words chosen and to their tense and their voice and their mood and all of those kinds of things. And so that's what we're going to focus in on here for just a moment. I want to focus on the words, has been born. Is this present tense? Going back to school. Present tense, future tense, or past? Past, has been born. It's a past thing that's happened, has continuing consequences into the future. He says... Everyone who practices righteousness, if you are practicing righteousness, you have been born. Do you see there's like an order here, a logical order here, so that the being born again happens first, and the practicing righteousness happens second, right? Meaning that you can't reverse those two things. You can't say... I was performing all of these righteous things, and that righteousness brought me into being born again. You can't say that. It's putting the cart before the horse. God's grace is not dependent on our righteousness. Rather, God's grace produces righteousness in us. You see, so you see the order here, okay? Has been born. If you practice righteousness, you have been born, past tense, and future uh, consequences. The new birth, then, when we talk about being born again as believers, the new birth is logically prior to the practicing of righteousness. That makes sense? New birth first, then we've practiced righteousness second. It produces that. First, you are born of God, or saved, or born again, or redeemed, and then you practice righteousness. You cannot do good works in order to be saved, but you are saved in order to do good works. Now, this little logical progression should be common knowledge in biblical terms. But just to give you a little bit of a uh, foreshadowing here, in 1 John chapter 5, he says the same thing. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And so I just want to draw a little connection in the parallel that's going on here, okay? Taking this in the same way as I think that we ought to do, then we understand that according to 1 John 5, 1, the new birth actually comes before belief. That is, in order to believe, we need to be born anew. Now, this happens in a moment's time, but logically and biblically, we need God to create belief in us. Otherwise, we would go on our own way. Everyone, and he says it the same way in there. Everyone who believes, what? Past tense, has been born of God. If you're believing now, it's because you were, you, you, you were born of God.
Um, taking these two the same way as I think we ought, the new birth comes before belief. You believe because you were born anew. But since that's not in our text today, I'll just throw that out there for it to simmer a little bit as we come up to that message, Lord willing, in a few weeks. In the meantime, here's what the present text is teaching us. You want to reform a society and change its morals? Preach the new birth. Preach Christ. Preach and any strategy implemented to change culture around us must include Christ. Christ changes people and Christ changes cultures. He's essential to this. And this really is kind of what the next section is about. It's about us being more and more conformed to Jesus Christ. The believer's conformity to Christ. Here we read this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The phrase here in English that uh, says, what kind, what kind of love, what kind, could be translated as, of what country? From what country does this love come from? (laughs) This is so foreign to us. And so odd that that John portrays here in his letter complete shock and corresponding thrill and excitement. It's like he's saying this. This kind of love is so otherworldly that it just comes from a different country entirely. We've never seen the likes of this love in our lives. 1 John 3, 1 through 2 here is expressing, essentially, that there are no words that exist in the human language that can describe the love of God. Like, whatever you think God's love is, you stand in front of the Lord one day, you are going to be in complete and utter amazement. I did not know the half of Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Put together a compilation of the world's most brilliant theologians. Put together a compilation of the best sermons on the love of God, and just one after the other, and we have not even begun to scratch the depth of the love that God has for us. Not even as as deep as a parent's love for their child is, that cannot even scratch the surface 
of God's love for his children. He loves you more than that. And consequently, it is appropriate then, when one grasps or at least attempts to grasp in this life the depth of that love, it is appropriate to cry out in awe and to say, what manner of love is this? As John does. What manner of love is this? What, 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 what brand, what variety, what country does this love come from that we should be called children of God? It doesn't register at all that, that I could be called a child of God. Now, why would John respond with such shock? Let's reverse engineer this statement a little bit, okay, and work backwards. Here's the statement. What manner of love that we should be called children of God? What would cause someone to say that? Okay, let's ask a question. What kind of love would evoke this kind of a response? Again, going to the parent-child relationship. Would a mother's love for her newborn child evoke this kind of a response? Would Would you look at a mother caring for her newborn child and respond with, shock and amazement and awe at that scene. It is marvelous, but it's expected. It doesn't shock you. You say, what? She's loving her child? (laughs) What? She calls that her child? You, You expect it. It's normal. So how can we get a little closer to the idea of what's going on here? You get a closer picture of this when you look at the father's love for the prodigal son. Because we're not so sure that that's expected love. You've kind of ruined your chances of being called this. You've destroyed that. You you took your inheritance from your father early, and you wasted all of that money on harlots. And you come back to your father, and he knows all of this, and he opens his arms, And he says nothing of the son's folly and says, I'm glad that you're home, son. I've missed you. And he hugs him and they weep together. We're getting closer to the idea here of why John is so shocked by this. We're somewhat taken aback in the story of the prodigal son because we're shocked because he takes his son back with no stipulations, no conditions, no caveats. He just embraces him and hugs him. He doesn't say, well, Go work as a servant for a year or two, and then we'll see if I love you again. He doesn't say that. He just loves him. This kind of love is, we might say, a little bit shocking, a little bit unexpected. And so now let's take that back to what John is saying. Why is John so shocked to see this kind of love? The, the, the kind of love that calls us God's children. And, and the reason <coughs> that God's love for us is so marvelous and unexpected is because we are in the same situation as a prodigal son. We don't deserve his love. You can't get to where John is if your foundational assumption is that we all deserve God's love. You don't deserve it. That's why the shock. If we deserved God's love, the verse would make no sense. It only makes sense in a universe where we don't deserve God's love. We read in Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, 
to God. We read in Colossians 1.21, you who once were alienated from God. And there are other passages, of course, that describe the enmity that exists between God and us. Only after you have glimpsed at and started to understand a little bit of the total depravity of the human heart, can you recoil and say, what manner of love is this? He loves me even though I'm that bad. Albert Barnes writes about this. When we remember how insignificant we are as creatures and how ungrateful, rebellious, and vile we have been as sinners, we may well be amazed at the love which would adopt us into the holy family of God so that we may be regarded and treated as children of the Most High. A prince could manifest no higher love for a wandering, ragged, vicious orphan boy found in the streets than by adopting him into his own family and admitting him to the same privileges and honors as his own sons. And yet this would be a trifle compared to the honor which God has bestowed upon us. Rich prince, king, goes out into the streets and finds the most malnourished, uh, unruly, uh, least cared for child in the corner and adopts him as his own son and lets him sit at the family table and partake of all the blessings of being in that family. And you're miles away from the comparison that exists between what God has done with us. We have this honor, this undeserved, mysterious, glorious honor. People say a lot of times, preach, pre- you, you preach grace and we need to preach grace so much. You preach grace and, and, and someone says, I, I've been too bad of a sinner. I've been such a horrible, you don't understand what I've done and seen, and you don't under, and I've been this, and th- you got that part right. Here's the part that you don't get right in that sentence, is you don't understand how deep the love of God is that goes beyond all of that. You want to swap stories of how bad we've all been, and we could get some doozies, Okay. We could get some. We've lived pretty wretched lives. Cannot sin God's grace and His love. That's why John says, See what kind of love? From what country does this come from that God calls us His children? God's love seems so foreign to us. And likewise, we seem foreign to the world. But we are God's children now, those who've repented and believed upon Christ. And because of this, he causes us now to experience all the privileges of being his children, including growing in conformity to him. Verse 2, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now, what we've seen so far regarding God's love is marvelous 
but it isn't through yet. God is still at work in our lives. We await future glorification. We are God's children now, but when we see Christ face to face, we will become like him. We will be transformed. Now, I want to focus on something significant here. This verse is telling us that when we see Christ, what will happen? We will be like him. One author puts it this way. Beholding is a way of becoming. Beholding Christ, a way of becoming. Another author puts the same concept this way. Vision becomes assimilation. That is to see Christ, we become like him. The idea is that we become like that which we behold. This is an important foundational, bedrock, concrete thing to understand. Whatever you look at and aspire to and delight in, you will become like that thing. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says the same thing. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay? What is this teaching us? Those who behold God's glory are transformed to be like him. Right? You want to be like Christ? Then look at Christ. Now, the corollary is also true. You want to become more and more like Christ? Then look at Christ. The corollary is true. This is how you become a deadbeat, by beholding frivolous things. Psalm 115.8 says exactly this. Those who make them, or idols, those who make idols become like them. So do all who trust in them. If you make and behold idols, you become like them. If you behold Christ, you become like him. Okay? This happens on that grand level. It also happens human to human level. You are going to become like the people that you surround yourself with. It just happens. So um, find someone, young people, find someone with some gray hair. Okay? Find someone who's been, or no hair, I mean, whichever way. <laughs> I'm looking out here, I'm like, there's some, sorry. <laughs> Find someone who's been through it, right? Who's been in the trenches. Who's got some experience. And that's just not physically speaking, okay? Gray hair. Uh, people who have walked with the Lord for a long season. That's what I'm trying to get at, okay? And attach yourself to that person. Because what are you going to do? You're going to become like them. And if you hang out with deadbeats, then you become a deadbeat, okay? It's just the nature of the way it works. And this passage teaches us that, but Proverbs 13, 20. Um, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm, okay? How do we distill this down? Well, we'll basically say it this way. You are what you eat. You become what you behold, according to the passage. The world is full full of foolish decisions. Go out there and make some wise decisions. 
The good news here in this verse, in 1 John, is that the image of God in man is being restored. We are fallen creatures, but if we are in Christ, that image is being restored to its original glory, and that's what glorification is. Consequently, redeemed people are different, and that's what the last part tells us. Verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Redeemed people pursue purity. Christians have a burning desire to be more like Christ, and that thrusts them away from sin and, dis- from sin and disobedience and towards obedience. We long to be like our master. I want to be more like Christ. This doesn't mean that we're perfect. We've been over that enough times in 1 John. It doesn't mean that we're sinless. John is not saying that Christians will be sinless in this life. But it does mean that we will look more like Jesus today than we did five years ago. And it means that we despise the indwelling sin that remains in us. Right? We can get caught in a very bad habit of only hating the sin that exists in other people. We should hate the sin that exists in other people, okay? But we should also hate the sin that exists in our own heart too and despise it. We want to long to be like our master. The gospel does this work in us and transforms us. So where do we go from here? Uh, I just want to distill this down to five points of application. Um. Abide in Christ so that you will not be ashamed at his coming. That's the first one. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Well, I gave you that whole long list earlier, okay? I can give any of this to you if you didn't get all of it written down. That's fine. Um, Abide in Christ so that you will not be ashamed at his coming. Uh, Evaluate your life for evidence of the new birth. Are you continuing to look more like Christ? This is what John is continuing to, to push us to again and again and again. Is there fruit in your life? Is there any fruit at all? Uh, Number three, if you are abiding in Christ, rejoice that you're a child of God. This is that marvelous awe kind of, (laughs) I'm a child of God? Are you serious? What kind of love is this? What country does this love come from? Stop beholding frivolous things and begin beholding weighty and glorious things. Um, Not saying that we can't entertain ourselves in, in some form or fashion, or go on a vacation or something like that. Um, That's not what I mean by frivolous things. Um, But just the stuff that's just useless, valueless. And then pursue moral purity, as verse 3 exhorts us to do. Now, how do we do these things? By abiding in Christ. You won't do this independently. You can't cut the vine and then go and be successful. It's in Christ and Christ alone. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. We thank you for the gospel and the opportunity to look at this passage today. Help us to abide in Christ. If there's anyone here who's not abiding in you, we pray that you would bring them to repentance and faith in Christ and give them the confidence and joy that comes from being called a child of God. We thank you for the work that you have done and continue to do in our lives. Pray that you'd help us to honor you in Christ's name. Amen.